Amen. Wow. Powerful. And it's powerful for me to look out and to see you worshiping along with that song. Powerful stuff this morning. Christ, our living hope. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn, with your, turn your Bibles with me for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. We are in the Old Testament this morning, the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, we're going to read verses 12 through 17 together. I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us as people. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is God's holy word for us as people today. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word. Father, we give you praise that you have revealed your word to us in the holy scriptures. And we open them and we turn to them because we want to hear from you. You have heard from us today. In our prayers, in our praises, in our, our, in our fellowship together. And now, Lord, we long to hear from you. To hear the word of Christ sound forth from the scriptures. Write the truth of your word upon our hearts today. And may we be changed to be more like Christ as a result. And to leave here ready and willing to run in obedience to all you called us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever wondered why God didn't reveal the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament? Have you ever thought about that? The Trinity shows up all over the New Testament. We read about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit often in the New. But where's all that in the Old 
The Old Testament stresses emphatically the uniqueness of Yahweh. The God of Israel alone is the only true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. The Old Testament also insists on the unity of God. Yahweh is not divided into multiple parts. Rather, he is the one single divine being. Yahweh does not share his divinity or his glory with any other being. He alone is the whole God and the only God. Everything else is an idol. Everything else is a deceiver. Everything else is a parody of the real thing. This is the message of the Old Testament. The uniqueness of God and the unity of God. And it's crystallized in passages such as Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. The Old Testament begins with this teaching, the teaching of monotheism, the doctrine of the absolute oneness of God. And it's only in the coming of Christ and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, in fulfillment of the history of redemption, that the Trinity begins to be revealed more explicitly. There are glimmers and glimpses and clues and pointers and potential little foreshadowings of the Trinity in the Old Testament. There are little indications you can possibly find in there. But without the New Testament, you're not going to see it. But after the coming of Christ and the Spirit, now the Trinity begins to be unfolded in a much more explicit way. The unfolding of the Trinity coincides with the accomplishment of your salvation. That means that we need the gospel to prepare us for the Trinity. The Trinity is a gospel doctrine. Now, on May the 30th, we are going to celebrate Trinity Sunday on the annual church calendar. And that morning, we are going to have a sermon on the Trinity. But we're not ready for that yet. We need the gospel to prepare us for the Trinity. And so, in order to prepare us for a sermon on the Trinity on the 30th, we are looking this week and next at the coming of Christ and the Spirit in salvation history. This morning we're going to focus on Christ. And next Sunday, which will be Pentecost Sunday, we focus, naturally enough, on the Holy Spirit. Now, rather than studying the coming of Christ and the Spirit in the New Testament, which would be very easy to do because they're all over the place, instead I want us to look at prophecies of their coming in the Old Testament. And so I've chosen the book of Joel to do the work. And so that's where we're going to be this week and next. This is going to be a super quick, big overview, two-week series on Joel. Sort of prime the pump 
if you will, to see the Trinity. So that's where we're going. In our passage this morning, the prophet Joel is announcing God's summons to his wayward people to repent as a nation and to return to their loyalty and their faithful worship of Yahweh. We will look at this prophetic announcement in the larger context of the book of Joel and then see how it anticipates its fulfillment in the coming of Christ. And this prophetic announcement in our text has three parts for us to see. So we begin first with a proclamation of hope. The first element is a proclamation of hope. Now, to see this element of hope, we need to know something about the book of Joel and why Israel is being called to repent in the first place. Joel is a prophet sent by God to minister and prophesy to the people of God who have recently returned from exile. In chapter 1, Joel describes a great plague in Israel. Not a plague of sickness and disease, but a plague of an army of locusts. A plague of locusts has descended upon the land in Joel chapter 1. And the plague is strikingly severe. Look back with me at chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Verse 11 Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. And then verse 16, Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. This is a devastating plague of locusts that threatens to undo the whole nation. And in chapter 2, Joel prophesies that the locust plague, as horrendous as it is, is only a sign of the true plague that looms on the horizon. What's coming next is another army, but not an army of locusts, but of fierce men, stout warriors that will devour and destroy the land and all its inhabitants. This day of doom and destruction is called the day of the Lord. Look back at chapter 1, verse 15. Joel says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. 
and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 1. Joel says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them, out in front, before they get there, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. They strip the land bare and burn all that is in their path. And then verse 6, Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. In verse 10, the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. This is a terrifying day that looms on the horizon for Israel. You thought the locusts were bad. What's coming next? is unimaginable in its severity. But here's the twist. It's the Lord who is the commander of these armies. He is the one who sends these plagues upon His people in judgment. Look at chapter 2, verse 11, the verse right before our passage for this morning. The Lord utters His voice before His army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. This army marching upon Israel is executing his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is a great day of judgment that's coming upon God's people. What is Israel's sin that they've brought this upon themselves? What have they done? Well, the sin that Israel is called to turn from in our text is in verse 12. He says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me. Return to me. Remember, these are Israelites who were sent into exile and now they have come back from their exile and they've returned to the land of Israel. But even though they've returned to the land, they haven't returned to their God. You might be back in the homeland. You might be back at the temple. You might be back in Jerusalem. But in your heart, you have not yet returned to me. A halfway return won't do you any good. And the reason things are so bad is because 
Turning away from God is what got them exiled in the first place. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the prophet right before Israel is exiled. He is ministering even as the Babylonians take the city of Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Why? Because my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have me as an eternal, never-ending spring, a fountain of water, bubbling over, brimming with the water of life. And they look at me, they're parched with thirst, and instead of coming to me, the fountain of living water, they have forsaken me, turned their back on me, and they've gone to these little cisterns that they've dug out with their little shovels, these dry, bone-dry, broken cisterns, and there's no water, and they're licking the dust and sucking on dirt to try and get some satisfaction for their thirst. And all the while, I'm right there with a never-ending supply of living water. Be appalled at this, the prophet says. The heavens and earth should just gasp in, a, in disbelief that God's own people have forsaken Him. This says, that is evil. Forsaking the Lord is the evil that got them exiled in the first place. And now they're back in the land, but they haven't fully returned to their God. And Joel is saying... The locusts are just a little parable of what God has in store for us. You think exile was bad to begin with? You haven't seen anything yet. Return to me, says the Lord. Now this is the context of our passage. Where Joel delivers this prophetic announcement from God. Summoning his wayward people to fully return to him before the day of the Lord comes. When it will be too late to repent and to escape the judgment. When the army is breaking down the city walls and storming into houses and slaughtering everyone. It's too late to say, God forgive us, we'll, we repent now. Send the soldiers back out of the city. No, it's too late. Repent now before it's too late. And now we're ready to see the element of hope in this proclamation. None of that sounds hopeful. But now that you've seen the bad news, we're ready to see the element of hope. A pointer to some good news in our passage. Notice the very first words of verse 12. Yet, even now, declares the Lord. Yet, even now. Christian, do you feel the depths of hope and the heights of mercy in each of those words, given this context that we've just seen? Yet, even now. Yet, 
in spite of all your many sins and your great unworthiness, even, even though you have rejected and refused me time after time and have run farther and farther away every time I draw near and call you to myself, yet, even now, now I will have you back. Now I call you one more time. Now you can return to me right now. There is mercy. There is pardon. There is acceptance with the Lord now. Before the day of the Lord comes in judgment, now is the day of salvation. A day full of hope. Come back, my people. Come to me, come home, says your God. Yet, even now, is full of hope and possibility for unworthy sinners. This prophetic proclamation of hope is open and available to the people. It's open and available to them if they will have it. But if they accept this offer of hope, they must do so on God's terms. And what he requires for their deliverance, for their salvation, is their wholehearted, authentic, and comprehensive repentance. This is the second part of Joel's prophetic announcement in our passage. A call to repentance. It must be wholehearted, authentic, and comprehensive. Notice that the repentance first must be wholehearted. Verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Return to me with all your heart. Wholehearted repentance. This is radical Repentance, the kind that reaches all the way down to the low bottom of the heart. It is a turning, a change, a transformation in your very depths. Wholehearted repentance touches every part of your soul. Notice also this repentance is authentic. Look at the first part of verse 13. He says, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning. First part of 13. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. What's that mean? Well, rending the garments, tearing the clothes, was a sign in the ancient world of true Sorrow, of heartfelt anguish, or of genuine grief. It's what you did when you were overcome with uncontrollable anguish. For example, in Genesis 37, when Jacob is told that his son Joseph has been killed, he rends his garments as a sign of his intense grief and his mourning. And he covers himself with sackcloth and ashes. 
to show the depth of his sorrow over the loss of his son. And Joel tells the people, you need to rend your hearts, not your garments. In other words, your repentance has to be real. It can't just be a show. You can't just do the outward motion of displaying grief, rending the garments. Just tearing your clothes doesn't get you forgiven. Doing that thing you're supposed to do in the ancient world to show how sorry you are over your sin is useless if your heart's not in it. It means nothing. Joel says to these people, look, you're going through the motions. You're doing all the outward stuff. But really, you're just upset that the locusts ate all the crops. You don't actually want God back. You just want the harvest back. And you're putting on the, the sackcloth, and you're going around in the ashes, and you're, everybody's ripping their robes and their clothes. And in your heart, you haven't come back to God yet. It hasn't been wholehearted repentance, and it hasn't been authentic. Don't just put on a show. Don't play. Don't pretend with God. Don't go through the motions and say all the right things and then convince yourself that you've done all that God requires of you. And that applies to us. Don't just jump through those evangelical hoops that you think you have to jump through to get God to forgive you. Right? Raising a hand and walking an aisle and praying a prayer and coming down to an altar. And, and then... Satisfying yourself that, well, I did the right things in the right place when the preacher said to do them, so I'm good to go. And then you go home with an excuse to remain unchanged. But your religious conscience feels soothed. Joel is calling all of us out that your repentance can't just be Doing the external outward thing, that thing you're supposed to do to get saved or to get forgiven. It has to be from the heart. Authentic repentance is true, heartfelt, genuine sorrow over your sin that results in an observable change in direction in your life. I like to call it Showing the symptoms of salvation. Now, I thought of that analogy way before COVID, so, so sorry. But right, think of it as if someone jumped out of a swimming pool. Let's just change the analogy. If someone jumps out of a swimming pool dripping wet and grabs a live electrical wire, they're going to show some symptoms of having done that. Right? It's going to be noticeable. Maybe their hair standing up. <laughs> Maybe their eyebrows have been burned off. Like you're going to be able to tell this person has come into contact with something pretty powerful. Well, when you come into contact with the living God, you are getting a hold of something that's living and powerful. And it's going to show up. We're going to notice something is different about you. Something has changed. You have gotten a hold of something that's turned your world upside down. You haven't just grabbed an electrical wire. You haven't just caught a sickness and you're showing some symptoms. If you've caught the new birth, 
If you've contracted Christ, there will be symptoms. There will be evidence. And the evidence is you have a new relationship with God and you have a new relationship with sin. Now you love God and you hate sin. You've repented. You've turned. You've changed. Not because you did anything, but because you got a hold of the one who has transformed you from the inside out. Repentance has to be wholehearted and it's got to be authentic. We can't play games. We can't just go through the motions. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, notice finally on this second point that this repentance, it isn't just wholehearted. It isn't just authentic, but it is also comprehensive. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. I don't care if you're just about to walk down the aisle, cancel the wedding, come to the temple. (laughs) Bring the babies, bring the old people... Everybody, the elders, the people, all of you, come, gather, get together. We need to repent, Joel is saying. We need to do business with God. Joel's call to repentance demanded that the whole nation return to God. Not just a couple individuals, everybody, the whole nation, all Israelites were called upon to attend a service for a national day of repentance. We have national days of prayer, whoop-de-doo. We need a national day of repentance. That sends a whole different message. Joel's telling them, don't just have a big prayer service, a national day of repentance. And as a result... God expected the life of the nation and of all the people to change, to be marked with repentance and new obedience. Likewise, your repentance must not only be wholehearted and authentic, it must also be comprehensive. God wants all of you. He wants every part of you. He wants your whole life. He doesn't want you to hold anything back from Him. That was the problem with the Israelites. Halfway they returned to God. But not the whole way. They're holding something back for themselves. And God is calling us to comprehensive repentance that no area of life is untouched by God. He wants All of you. And he wants you all for himself. He will not let you hold anything back from him. If we want to accept the offer of hope, yet, even now, we must repent from the heart and return to the Lord, just like Israel in Joel's day. And if we will, we have The promise of deliverance. And this is now the third and final part of Joel's prophetic announcement in our text. A promise of deliverance. 
If Israel repents and calls upon the Lord, even now He will save them. And that is exactly what He does. Look at verse 17 of our text. It says, Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? And then keep reading. Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. This promise of salvation, of deliverance, God kept his word. He called them to repentance. They did it. And he delivered them. And he did it because of who he is. This promise of salvation is grounded in God's character. Look at the second half of verse 13. It says, Return to the Lord your God. Why? Because, for, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And just here is where we begin to see how this prophecy, in light of the New Testament, points us ultimately to its fulfillment in Christ. Notice the uncertainty, the hint of uncertainty in verse 14. Look how it starts. Who knows? Who knows? Whether God will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Who knows? He might. Let's do this repentance thing. (laughs) He's good. He's gracious. Who knows? He, He really might forgive us. There's this little bit of uncertainty. And you can kind of understand it. I mean, they just got back from exile. Maybe God doesn't have a bunch of patience left with us. We just got exiled for doing this. Now we're back and we're doing the same thing again. Maybe he's not going to be as lenient last time. He gave us like 500 years last time. Now we might have just a few more days. Who knows? Maybe he'll forgive us. Maybe he won't. And there was this little bit of uncertainty. But in the New Testament, Christ is the guarantee that, that God does relent over the disaster that looms on the horizon when the day of the Lord, the day of judgment of all nations, looms out ahead of us. We know because of Christ that God not only can and not only does, but He has relented from His wrath against our sin because the New Testament tells us that Christ is the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God for us and in our place. He guarantees that God will turn from His wrath if we come to Him. There's no uncertainty now in the New Testament. And why? 
It's because Christ is the ultimate offering that God gives us as an offering to himself. Let me run that back. Christ is the ultimate offering that God gives us as an offering to himself. Look at this curious language in verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So who knows, God just might help us to get some more grain because the locusts ate it all. He might just help us to get what we need to offer an offering back to him. So maybe God will give us the offering that we can offer him. God gives us the offering to him. God supplies us with the sacrifice. God gives us the offering. We see this in Genesis 22. When Abraham is walking with Isaac up the hill to Mount Moriah to offer his son upon the altar as a burnt offering to God. And Isaac says, Father, I see the wood and the stone and everything we need to build the altar and get the, get the fire ready. But where's the, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. And 2,000 years later, he did just that. Who knows? God might relent and leave a blessing. He might give us the offering we need to offer to him. And in Christ, he truly does. He gives us Christ. And Christ is our great high priest who offers the sacrifice, but he's also the victim of the sacrifice. He offers himself. God gives us his very self, his own son, who makes the sacrifice for us that we couldn't make for ourselves. And he delivers us. And in him alone we have that promise of deliverance. And now Christ as our great high priest continues to intercede for you at the right hand of God on the basis of the sacrifice that he offered. In the gospel, the one true God sends his only son to do for us what only God himself can do. And that means that somehow this one God has a divine son. A son who is the same God he is, but not the same person. It was the son of God who came and became flesh and died upon the cross, not the father. This one God of the Old Testament to fulfill these promises and prophecies that are somewhat cryptic until you actually see it being fulfilled in the New Testament. This one God has a son who must also be God if he can be our Savior. One God who has a son who is also God, but not the same person. It's only in the gospel that this begins to become clear. Only in the gospel, in our salvation in Christ, does the Trinity begin to emerge and to make any sense at all. 
our Savior, who fulfills this prophecy of salvation, must be identified with this one God. So that within the one God, we see Father and Son. Otherwise, our worship of Christ that we did today would be idolatry. We don't worship angels and creatures or anything that isn't God. But we worship Jesus today. And that wasn't idolatry. Because within the one God, there is Father and there is Son. And when we come to know Christ, our Savior, we take the first step in coming to know the Trinity. God is calling you today, Christian, to turn to Him with all your heart, to come to Him in repentance on His terms, to believe these promises that have been fulfilled in Christ, and to come and know Him who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we truly do desire to know you. And when we call upon you as Father, we recognize that you have always from eternity been a Father. For you have never been without your eternal, holy and divine Son. And we worship you today, one God, Father and Son, as well as the Holy Spirit. And we marvel at the mystery and we give glorious thanks to you because in the gospel, in the accomplishment of our salvation, we get to come to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent and to know the Holy Spirit who fills our hearts and indwells us and goes with us and inspires our praises this very morning. Lord, you have brought us into a eternal mystery. The life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you have allowed us into that eternal relationship so that in knowing you, Father, Son, and Spirit, we have eternal life. And seeing the gospel unfolded before us in Scripture, we see you for who you are. And we give you thanks that by showing us who you are, you have saved us forever. Help us to long to know you more, to cling to Christ, and to go higher up and farther in. Higher up and farther in. To know you in ways we couldn't have imagined. Show us your glory and satisfy us forever with what we see. Thank you, Lord, for showing us who you are. We pray this thing in, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.